as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and the successes or failures, but there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by David Stenton, Game Director at Dambuster. So join us as we explore his journey. Of course, if you haven't already done so, please consider dropping Dev Dory a five-star review or equivalent on your podcast service of preference. It really helps grow the show and get more people listening in to more awesome guests. Thanks a lot and enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well. Um, must be an exciting time for you at the moment with uh, Dead Island 2 being imminent slash out like it's one of those weird vacuum things that we're recording but kind of airing slightly after um but how are you feeling in this weird limbo period before the launch yeah it's, the, it's definitely the calm before the storm isn't it <laughs> it's, it's it's exciting you know a week today players will finally get their hands on dead island 2 um it's definitely been a, a long wait for the fans yeah over the years but, um yeah we're really excited um obviously as you as you might imagine it's constantly on my mind over the next, uh, you know, seven days. Constantly checking the the responses to uh, to previews and hands-on gameplay time. But yeah, I think uh, players are really going to enjoy it. Yeah, look, I mean, in, in this weird vacuum that we're in, which is pre-embargo and all that sort of thing, but thankfully talking to someone on the team, I can say, look, I've been, I've been playing the game and thoroughly enjoying enjoying my time with it so far. So a massive credit to you and the team for everything you've done up to this point. Everything else I'll leave reserved for, for when the world can get their hands on it imminently. But um, this is Dev Diary, so you talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that's led to this current point in time. So before we get to more Dead Island 2, I wanted to rewind to a point well before even your work in the industry and talk about some of your first exposures with games. Um, do you recall what the first game or what some of the first games were that you actually encountered when you were younger? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, games have been my life. Um, I've probably got to pay tribute to my older brother. He's seven years older than me. And so we were both massively into games. So back in the 80s, I got a hand-me-down ZX Spectrum Nice. Um, for my older brother, I was six at the time. You know, playing it on a black and white TV. Um, and you know, then I got his Commodore 64. And then we progressed to the Commodore Amiga, Sega Mega Drive, Super Nintendo, etc., etc., all the way through. So, and then you can probably see behind me on, on, you yeah. know, on my camera, I've got a lot of those games still. You know, drawers full of uh, cassettes from those micro computer days. But yeah, games have been my life. Um, I still regularly play retro games, uh, board games. You know, growing up in the eighties, I was a massive fan of like fantasy and fantasy games and Conan the Barbarian. Yep. You know, game, Games Workshop stuff, Warhammer, things like that. So some fantastic choices there. Um, and as yeah, I mean, look, this is an audio-only show, so all the all the viewers aren't going to necessarily appreciate what I'm getting to see now. But there are some fantastic titles. There's there's more recent stuff. Like I'm seeing Xbox 360 games. I'm seeing things like Mass Effect, which we'll get to shortly. Um, and then obviously on the other side, there are some unbelievable classics that are a little bit harder to tell due to the quality of the, uh, of the video that we're working with. But at the same time, there's a there's a few box arts that I just recognise. They just stick out. Um, from the, from that era, and it's it's fantastic to see. Um, as as you spent more time with video games, how did your taste evolve? Did you find yourself gravitating towards any particular franchises, genres, um, specific games along the way? 
That's a good question. I guess, yeah, it's, that is probably the case. I mean, over the years, there's definitely been phases where you get into certain sort of notable genres. I remember in the 90s, for example, the sort of mid to late 90s, that's when I really started to become a sort of a PC game player, um, you know, on a 486 DX266 and DX4100 and the Pentium, you know, Pentiums and, uh, yeah, playing, you know, first-person shooters. Um, in fact, back then, I used to play quite a lot of Quake, Quake 1. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was a level editor that came with Quake, which was called Worldcraft. Um, and I used to make levels back then for uh, for Quake. I've Over the years, you know, in my sort of teenage years, I'd always tended to sort of tinker with game creation myself anyway. I mentioned board games. Like, as a yep. kid, yep. I used to make board games, like strategy games and, you know, quite in-depth sort of stuff. Um, back on the Commodore Amiga, I remember I used to... Um, put discs in Deluxe Paint 3 and extract all the assets from games and sort of create animations and stuff from them. Um, so, yeah, I remember back in, you know, in the sort of PC days, I was massively into first-person shooters, you know, yeah. Quake and yeah. Doom and, um, you know, Unreal, all of those kind of games. And so a lot of those games that a lot of people discuss um, because of the, the moddable components to them, was that, did they make those games particularly important in perhaps your pathway towards pursuing video game development yourself would, would you say they were kind of integral piece along the way yeah it did actually um so when i was um 18 i went to university and i did a computing degree but it was a computing degree with some games modules and as part of our final year dissertation so i used to live in a flat with like an apartment with um three uh, two or three of my uh, sort of friends that were on the same yep. course as me and of course, like we used to play a lot of LAN games then. We used to play a lot of Counter Strike, for example. Um, and that's a given, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, that's a given. And, uh, so, yeah, but, you know, of course, we were all into game development. And I remember one evening playing Counter Strike, I accidentally spawned in Invisible. And so it was kind of a fun, like, 30 minutes where I'd go around Invisible with a knife, like, killing off all my teammates, and they didn't know where where I was in the level and it kind of spawned this idea for a mod that we would end up um, developing as part of our final year dissertation and the mod was called The Hidden and it was yep. one of those kind of asynchronous multiplayer games where one person is kind of barely visible predator-esque um, and then fight you know sort of fighting off against a squad of uh, soldiers it's so, so yeah, um... we, we... sorry go on we developed the the hidden as our final year dissertation and of course like that served as a pretty good portfolio piece i've got a range of other sort of portfolio pieces as well where i could then get a job straight after as a junior game designer and so was that um i guess uh, was that warthog at that point it was warthog for my first job in the industry yeah so that was a um a sort of a mid-sized developer work for hire developer um, in Manchester in England um, I was still living in Sheffield which is about sort of 30 miles away so I used to sort of commute across commute. The, the, uh, the Pennines every morning sort of there and back in my car in all kinds of weather conditions and um, but yeah it was it was a massively exciting period of my life you know I remember that moment of 
get finally getting my foot in the door as a junior game designer. I mean, I, I can't think of many more sort of monumental moments, really, because that's a you know a real sort of change of how your life's going to go. And I mean, even once you got in the door, the the IP that you're working on were not small. I mean, it, it became something obviously so much bigger as years progressed. But you you worked with Harry Potter. Uh, there was Nicktoon Snapshot. There was Mech Assault. Like, there, I mean. When I rattle off those games, what memories does that elicit for you? I mean, obviously yeah, Harry, Harry Potter, Philosopher's Stone, based on an enormous movie of the time. Um, I'd still argue one of the big, one of the biggest films of all time yeah. now, regardless. Um, but Nicktoons, Mechazol, still big franchises as well. So, what was that like to be a part of those? Yeah, I mean, I've got really good memories of working on Harry Potter. Um, I remember, I think we started on the game sort of maybe September time. And so some of the game, it was developed in quite a short period of time. I think it was something crazy like 10 months or 12 months. Um, and I, so I remember a good portion of it was actually over winter. Um, and then I was commuting by train and sort of looking out the window, at all the sort of snowy hills and working on Harry Potter, which I don't know if you sort of remember the first film. It's got, definitely got that sort of Christmas film yeah, vibe Yeah, I remember. It. Um, no, it's uh, it was um, awesome, and uh, we worked stupid hours on that. You know, crazy crunch. I was sleeping at the office, uh, but back then, you know, of course, like being twenty-one, absolutely like full of enthusiasm and full of energy, and everything was new to me. Right? You know, when the producer was sort of like getting in the pizzas for people to stay late, and I'd obviously, why wouldn't I order like the absolute biggest pizza and yeah, cash in. <laughs> yeah, cash in. But, you know, of course, then started to pile on the pounds and realised the error of my ways. But no, it was a fantastic period of time. You know, you you really bond with the people that you work with and become lifelong friends. Yeah, I can certainly appreciate the the conundrum there that comes with the the excessive amounts of pizza. As someone who worked at my first part time <laughs> job in a pizza shop, uh, do, and getting a free one from the boss at the end of every night, I've started to realise that oh, maybe I don't want to work every night at the moment because this is starting <laughs> to become a bit unhealthy. Um, but yeah, obviously a, a fantastic start from there. Um, and how did things progress from that point? Your next step as we kind of move through the chapters here is uh, Kuju Entertainment, um, where you worked on Pilot Academy and, and to End All Wars. Um, how did that transition occur for you? Uh, was it was it kind of that... Cr- I mean, I know it wasn't necessarily as documented back then as it is today, but was it that sort of burning the candle at both ends crunch sort of culture? Was it just a natural next step um, for you? How did you go they, from... One to another. It was actually it was actually Warthog that um, closed down. Um, yep. So I don't know if you remember back then. Um, Warthog was actually bought by the Gizmondo handheld. Oh, of uh, course. Company, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, which you know was a sort of a notoriously now a sort of failed handheld. But we were actually for a, a short period of time a first party developer working on um, games for the Gizmondo. Because but that's course, where Microsoft you know, was that, being developed for, right? That was where Mechasol yeah. was, you know. So I was working on Mechasol. I was lead designer for Mechasol on the Gizmondo. Um, and of course, you know, when the um, that all sort of went under, the studio closed, and I just moved back to Kuju. I had friends um, that had been colleagues at Warthog that now lived in Sheffield, and so I just moved back to my sort of hometown and you know, worked for Kuju instead. And that was a good experience, it was quite different again. So that was in a, just a small office there were about 15 people working on pilot academy for marvelous entertainment um and that was fantastic you know being able to work for a japanese publisher 
because that's a Japanese, quite a well-known Japanese yes. franchise. Um, and again, like quite a short development timeline, but another really good, fantastic memories, you know, of just sort of working with these sort of 10 or 15 um, friends, really, um, to, to release that game. Yeah, it's that kind of almost, I mean, a little bit different for the time, but it's that indie game sort of culture we tend to think of now. It's these smaller, more intimate groups where everyone really is involved with everyone's work. Um, and that is, I guess, a bit of a far cry from where things progressed from there, where you went to, at the time anyway, um, arguably one of the biggest and most beloved developers in the world at that particular point because your next step was Bioware where you were involved in Mass Effect 2 and 3 as well as Dragon yeah. Age Inquisition. Now, we've just touched on you know smaller teams, smaller projects, still some big IP in there along the way as well, but you've stepped in when development is going on Mass Effect 2, which obviously... You know, I don't need to say too much to the listeners here, Mass Effect 2 being one of the most beloved games of all time, um, and you just got to step into into working on that project. I mean, what was that like? How did you make that jump? How did that opportunity emerge in the first place? It, it was a dream come true, really. So the way that it worked out was, um, I think it was, what year was it? Was I think we're talking sort of Christmas, maybe 2006, something like that. Yep. Um, I'd been looking forward to the Mass Effect 1 coming out on Xbox 360, um, I don't know if you remember back then. I remember, I remember the E3 trailer for Mass yep. Effect One, and that really sort of um, enraptured me with the. So that, it had that retro sci-fi aesthetic, you know, the electro synth music, those slightly sort of seventies, eighties um, sci-fi yeah, space thought, yeah. costumes, that kind of thing, and just the idea of being able to explore all of these different planets and galaxies and. Um, uh, it was uh, so the promise of Mass Effect was really exciting to me. And I remember playing it all the way through Christmas. I think I must have got it for probably um, Christmas 2005. Um, and I finished the game, loved it. And then I kind of looked up my game shelf and thought, you know what? Like, if I could go anywhere in the world and work for any developer, what would you know? What would I want to work on? And I was looking at games like sort of Far Cry. So you know, I think I was playing yeah. Far Cry Two. Was it back then? Maybe something oh, like that. Yeah, five oh six period. Yeah, for sure. God of War um, with Sony Santa Monica, uh, but Mass Effect as well. Um, and so I applied, and I you know went through the various inter- interview processes and did tests. It was a fantastic experience because me and my fiance. Um, we were flown over there for an interview, um, so we got to spend a few days in Canada, sort of get to know the place, and yeah, so it all went uh, well, and we ended up relocating with our cat. Um, I was only 25, I think, back then. It's a big so, life move, yeah. Yeah, it was a big. It was exciting, you know. It, it was exciting, and I was never moving from the UK because I didn't like the UK. It was just such an amazing opportunity to work on a game, you know, to, to work on massive on the sequel to the game that I already loved. It was a huge opportunity. Um, yeah, one of those that you can't really it. refuse. I mean, the, the just the the level of expertise at Bioware at the time was amazing. It was kind of daunting, but it was a fantastic learning opportunity. I learned so much um, working. You know, on those games, worked with some fantastically knowledgeable people. You know, all kinds of things that were really uh, pivotal, I guess, in my career, sort of skill building and knowledge building. 
Um, so yeah, I had a fantastic time working on Mass Effect 2. I worked on the on the various DLCs for Mass Effect 2 afterwards, like Kasumi and Lair of the Shadow Broker, which was one that I was particularly proud of. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, moved on to Mass Effect 3. I've got to say, probably by the time that I'd finished on Mass Effect 3, um, having worked on it for a few years, like my passion for the franchise had dwindled a little bit. Um, it was obviously, you know, it was still an awesome game. We were still releasing what was fundamentally like still a really fantastic game. Absolutely. It's just, I, I missed that sort of retro sci-fi aesthetic from the first game. Kind of felt by the the third game, things had got so big and so bombastic, it had almost gone a little bit Michael Bay. Um, <laughs> the end. Is it is it so also I one was, of those I things was... that when you when you're working on, I mean, you've gone from being a fan of something to then working on it. Is it one of those things where you almost got too close? You know, seeing how the sausage is made, all those sort of sayings that I could wheel out here. Was it one of those that where maybe you simply got a little bit too close, and so it did diminish a little bit as well? Yeah, it is a little bit like that. I mean, obviously you're a fan because you're just completely immersed in everything, you know, all of the merch and all of the posters. And, yeah. You know, you, there's a magic in working um, in that environment for definite, but it's hard to deny that. I mean, as a developer, this is something that you often struggle with anyway. It's to see the wood for the trees, right? You start yeah. to become very critical of the, the bits that you're working on and actually... Often you need to sort of step back, zoom out a little bit and see how overwhelmingly positive the picture is. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's an aspect of that for sure where sort of peeking behind the curtain, you lose a little bit of that. And so you continued uh, working with Bioware for a couple more years, though beyond that, working on uh, Dragon Age Inquisition as well, but didn't see that one to completion, if I recall. Um so it's at this point where you made the jump from Bioware over to Crytek at the time, which then uh, lots of documented circumstances there. Uh, everything shifted over to Dambuster and, and then, yeah, with uh, Homefront and a whole whole range of different things that we'll dive into in a second. But um, in terms of that initial jump from Bioware, considering the prestige of the studio, the last three titles, as we've just cited at that point, Mass Effect 2, 3 and Inquisition, all like you know, multi-game of the year nominees slash winners. What was it that prompted the jumping of the ship for you personally yeah I, uh, and i'm sorry i make it sound like it's a sinking ship that was not what i was trying to imply at all but as you know for you to you know a new a new location new new home it, it, it yeah it was mostly personal circumstances so um i think sort of looking back on it i was probably a little bit homesick um yep. you know as i said i always enjoyed living in the uk i never really had a problem with the uk and i love canada as well uh but you know, obviously all our families back home. Um, my mother became critically ill as well um, during that period. So I ended up traveling back, I think it was Christmas, probably 2012 yeah. uh, for a few weeks to sort of, you know, go and see her in intensive care and that kind of thing. So that was fairly sort of traumatic. And it was, a, we've got a young baby. Our daughter was born in Canada and it was about that sort of time. I kind of thought, you know what, life's too short. I've got to go back and sort of spend more time with my family because ultimately, you know, I sort of missed my family. Um, so, yeah, I was, I mean, career-wise as well at that point, I'd been a designer for quite a long time, you know, sort of worked my way up from junior to, to lead designer. Um, so I spent quite a long time in design and I was ready to sort of broaden my skills as well. So I wanted to sort of move into production. 
Yeah. Um, and that was the opportunity that I took with uh, Crytek, and that brought me back to Nottingham, which is where I am now at Danbuster. So I've been at this studio now for 10 years, actually, which is the longest I've been in any you've had. Yeah. studio. Um, but as you said yourself, I mean, there's something about home now, whether, whether there's kind of really important family circumstances like what you described. Some people can be homesickness. Some people can be a combination of a whole range of different factors. There's always there's always that pull of coming home. And so I t- totally don't blame you in the slightest. I'm sure no, no one would. And, and it resulted on you working on, uh, yeah, coming to Crytek, working on Homefront, the, revolu- uh, the revolution. Um, what was it like with the, the changing of hands there? Because obviously Crytek had its financial troubles and so things shifted along the way throughout development there. What was that like for you? Because I guess compared to what you would have had with Bioware at the time that you were there, I guess there was a bit more instability at this particular period in time. What was that like for you as you're as you're trying to go about your work and 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 do the day to day and try and make the best game you can? But there's a little bit of this background going on um, that I assume served as a bit of a distraction. Yeah, I kind of conflicted about it really because you know on on one hand, like as a producer, it's about problem solving, right? And so there's a lot to get your teeth stuck into. Yeah. Um, so in many ways. You know, working on that game, um, it was challenging. There was a lot to try and improve, and it was an ambitious game with a fairly small team and quite tight sort of time frames. And as you described, like turbulence along the way. So, I mean, there was plenty to keep me busy and sort of keep me satisfied and keep me learning. Frankly, yeah. again, I was exposed. As a producer, then I was exposed to all kinds of things that I wasn't necessarily exposed to as a designer. You know, from a development point of view, I was going to be three, doing like on stage interviews, these kind of things. Um, and previously, I've just not done anything like that. You know, as a yeah. designer. So again, it's a fantastic learning opportunity. Even though that game didn't release necessarily in the in the state that we we wanted it at the time, and we were just dis- really disappointed with that. But we worked hard afterwards to I think the DLCs for Homefront were some of the best content for that game. Um, we worked on the patches to yep. bring the performance up to a pretty good standard. Um, so yeah, in the end, you know, we sort of I think pulled it around so that it it, it was finally in a state that we should have released it in the first place. I mean, was that something you were kind of bracing for when that, that first round of reviews and of course then the, the public access to the game was kind of closing in? Given the state the game was in, I assume that was something you were kind of aware aware of at the time. Was that something you were bracing for a little bit, or was there elements of that that maybe caught you by surprise a little bit? Yeah, I think we were too close to see. You know, we were, couldn't see the wood for the trees. Yeah, probably. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was really disappointing. Um, but you know, we had to go through a period then of, as I said, rebuilding, and we wanted to do the right thing for the players and so as I said we spent a, a lot of time afterwards working on the performance and improving the performance and producing the best DLC content that we possibly could um, so yeah I guess sort of looking back on that uh, back in sort of 2016 it seems like such a long time ago now it does you know, it's yeah. like the, dis- the distant past um and so, obviously, uh, I guess as someone who played that DLC and the original game, I would wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. I think it was one of the one of the strongest parts of the entire experience with some of that expansion content that came afterwards, and those patches, as you say, made a huge difference as well. So, for anyone listening who perhaps um, had a rougher experience when you first went out uh, went out the gate and played it, 
you know, a few years on, consider checking it out again. Um, but that takes us towards there's a there's a there's a few years gap there that um, like between Homefront and then picking up Dead Island Two. I don't know how much you can or cannot say about that that window of time. So I'll leave that kind of open to you. But um, how did all of that then lead to Dead Island Two? Because that game itself, not dissimilar to to Homefront, had been through turbulent development. It had been a long, long time. It had been announced. We're getting close enough to a decade now, certainly close to a decade than not, um, and has gone through multiple sets of developer hands from uh, from Jaeger to Sumo and then eventually Dambuster. How did how did that whole period look for you as suddenly the the game became an option and it ultimately then became your your current project? Yeah, so as I said, after Homefront, after the release in twenty sixteen. We were about a year sort of still um, maintaining and working on the DLC content for Homefront. But one of the big endeavors really that we had to do was moving across from CryEngine to Unreal Engine 4, because um, you know the, the future for the studio really was to sort of move across to a different engine. Um, so it was a period of sort of rebuilding, working on tech, figuring out what we wanted to do, um, exploring different projects, doing some R&D, um, improving sort of pipelines and, you know, a lot of that sort of non-glamorous um, stuff really for a while and sort of building up the, the team. Um, and when the, the opportunity for Dead Island 2 um, arose, um, we really sort of grasped that opportunity with, with both hands because it was I think it was a really good fit for the, um, for the studio. It was a genre that we were passionate about. You know, first person, the studio historically has you know often worked on sort of first person games. Um, we had a lot of respect for the franchise. You know, I remember playing Dead Island One back in the day. I think it was yep. back in Canada actually, and playing it on Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, um, and you know finishing that and playing Riptide. Um, so it was a it was a privilege. It's a privilege to work on the on the franchise. And, but what we really wanted to do was sort of wipe the slate clean and really just focus on what we personally were passionate about for that particular, for this particular franchise, which was we wanted to do something supremely gory and absolutely be best in class first person melee combat. There aren't that many first yeah. person melee combat games out there. And it was something that we really felt like, you know what, I think we can really push the boundaries of this a little bit and sort of do something different and certainly based on my time with it i feel like some boundaries are absolutely absolutely being pushed and you touched on things like gore for example as well that's a hundred percent something that just kind of tests my guts from time to time um given given the development that the game had been through up to that particular point you kind of you'll be inheriting uh, you know quite a degree of work it kind of falls into your lap, I guess, when you first take on the project. How do you pass through all that and work out? Because obviously the team would, yourself and the team, would have your own philosophies on what this game needs to be, but there's obviously some work that's been done that potentially goes in a different direction. How did you and the team kind of pass through what was there and work out what stays, what goes, what can we tweak? Um, because there's obviously, like, there's a there's a respect towards those who've already had their hands on it that's that's a factor as well. How do you go through that whole process? Because it's, a, it's a, not the most common of uh, circumstances I guess yeah I mean again I suppose from our point of view our focus was really on how can we achieve 
what we're really passionate about. Um, and of course, like we had access to the, you know, the, the previous builds and the previous versions of the game. Um, but ultimately, you know, they weren't necessarily focusing on the areas that we wanted to focus on. And there's a lot of work that goes into having to sort of unpick that kind of thing. It really just made sense. And because we'd been working on our own tech um, in the background as well, um, it really just made sense for us, you know, it's going to be quicker to execute on our vision to really just sort of wipe the slate clean and just do what we what we want to do with Dead Island 2, which is, you know, sort of what we did uh, really from 2018 onwards. So there wasn't too much looking back, honestly, sort of retrospectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was mostly just, you know, let's get, let's hit the ground running as quick as possible. One of the first things that we wanted to focus on was really that one-on-one player zombie combat. Um, and so we had that fun, I would say, almost right from day one. And that's something that we've been maintaining all the way, right the way through development to make sure that let's always focus on the core combat. Yes. Of course, the flesh system was a huge element that augmented that and sort of um, had a life of its own in a way. You know, the way that the flesh system, um, the inception of that at the beginning was actually we were just sort of looking almost from an efficiency point of view actually to sort of say well you know what we want to focus on melee combat do we really want to have to generate all of these different variations of zombies with bits of limb missing and you know sort of hide them when you're dismembering them so the initial sort of thought was well let's um let's just do something procedural with the dismemberment where you could dismember them say at any point on the arm It'd be more efficient to do it. It'd look cool as well because you'd get sort of much better precision. Um, but the whole system just snowballed really from there because we realised that we can do more with it and more with it and more with it. So it was refactored and refactored again. And what we've ended up with now is really a simulation of the sort of complete anatomy of the zombie from the clothes all the way through to the skin and yep. tissue and you know organs and skeleton underneath. Um, that really allows us just to sort of play with that combat sandbox, you know, explosions like shred away the skin and acid sort of melts through the through the flesh. So this was all integral really to uh, pushing the boundaries of the you know, first person mellow combat. Um, it certainly seems like that is one of the elements that you are the most proud of from that game. And it's certainly, I must I must admit, like playing it, it's, yeah, leaning into that gore and that... Um that realism of the whole thing as much as you can be realistic when you're looking at zombies um it it really plays and feels fantastic um is there anything just leaning back on the i guess the nature of that development beforehand is there anything that you inherited that you looked at like we like this has to stay this is something that just works maybe it needs a little bit of tweaking still maybe needs maybe need to build on a little bit further like this core element this has to stay i mean there was the there was the la location that we thought worked you know that absolutely we saw no reason to move from that so one of the big franchise pillars for dead island is paradise gone to hell yeah um yeah you know some people might describe la as paradise some people might describe la as hell you know without a zombie outbreak right depending on your point of view Uh, but what it does have is that those absolutely iconic locations you know those iconic postcard locations you've got the mansions of sort of beverly hills you've got the pier on Santa Monica and Venice Beach, the Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and 
that really worked for us still. You know, we saw no reason to um, to move away from that. Um, you know, we're, we're a British studio, right? We're developing Dead Island in the heart of England. A lot of the development was done during COVID lockdown. So this is actually, you know, this is very much a sort of an outsider's postcard point of view of what Los Angeles is and all of the different personalities and character types that, um, you know, that inhabit LA as well. No, that's that's awesome, yeah. and um, people are obviously incredibly close to getting hands on with that and seeing exactly what that outsiders take on hell kind of you know can look like there. So, please be excited for that one. Um, as we begin to wind things down a little bit, because we've only got a couple minutes left up our sleeve, um, and honing in a little bit more on you specifically again, is there anyone out there that really ins- has inspired you in the way you go about your work that you've worked with or look at from afar? I mean, I was, there's been sort of individuals all the way through my career, I would say, that have been, um, I, would, I would say, that have been like really fantastic mentors. You know, the um, Hal Sandbach, who uh, recruited me back at Warthog Games as a junior designer. Yeah. Um, you know, we became really good friends. You know, you learn a lot from these people. Dusty Everman, who was my manager in um, at Bioware. He's a fantastic lead for uh, you know for the on the Mass Effect franchise on the design side. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a, really a, a raft of uh, folks all the way through. Um, the, I mean, the, the cool thing about game development is it's always pushing the sort of cutting edge of tech and experiential sort of player experiences they're always growing always trying to bring new things to play so there's always new things to learn never stop learning in game development so as game director i'm working with various other experts in their own disciplines you know fantastic art director fantastic uh, creative director um you're you're always learning off from from one another no, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, absolutely, in your role means you're going to be touching on people who are experts in so many different disciplines and that, that's going to provide you so much as well. Um, a couple of lighter ones as we start to wrap up. Uh, if you could be credited for any game, so just retroactively add your name into the credit for something, just saying, I wish I could have been a part of that. And it, it can be a simple special thanks if that's what you like. What game would you have loved to have been a part of developing? to say maybe something like maybe Half-Life maybe Doom yeah. something you know one of those really iconic first person shooters I, I want to say Half-Life just because you know there was the modding scene for that yes. for me was so sort of instrumental it's a good game and also it was just awesome to work you know, no that awesome, awesome choice there similar style question if you could go back and replay any game strike it from your memory and get to experience it all over again with no baggage no context no Spoilers, no nothing. What game would you pick? Probably Secret of Monkey Island 2 on the Congo movie. Awesome yeah, well, choice. Was, I've got good memories of playing that as well. I think that was a game that I, I got that for like my 12th birthday or something. And it was, it, I think it was the first point, point and click adventure actually that I played. And it just had a, that awesome cartoon aesthetic. It was just totally you know, something new for me, like a new gaming experience. So definitely been able to go back and play that for actual for no, that, that's an amazing choice. So, David, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far, sharing a range of insights into many different parts of your career, including, obviously, the more recent work with Dead Island 2. Uh, we should qu- absolutely do some quick plugs for the game. So uh, I'll throw that over to you. What do people need to know with Dead Island 2 being so imminent? 
So Dead Island 2 comes out uh, on Friday the 21st of April. Um, absolutely excited for fans to finally get their hands on it. You know, if you want an awesome cult journey through LA, all of these fantastic locations, a roller coaster story through LA, slaying zombies and having fun, please you know, try it out and pick it up and I hope you have a good time with it. And if people want to learn more about what you're up to on the day-to-day, social media, that sort of thing, where should people go? You can find me on Twitter, so at DL Stenton. Twitter, find me on LinkedIn, so yeah, reach out. Awesome. That's, that gives people a few different platforms. As I said, David, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, sharing this journey so far. We are so close to the launch, incredibly excited for the launch, and I hope that for you and the entire team that it goes incredibly well. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been David's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.